Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A here on SFIA. We'll be taking all of your questions and getting to a couple of ones we missed from last week to begin with while you're getting those into the moderators. As usual, we are joined by my lovely wife Sarah who will be asking us questions today. And uh, there we go. What's our first question to start off with, Mario? Yes, so we had a couple questions we were unable to get to last week, one of which was, would you have a home observatory? Hmm. Um, I think the problem we would have here is why I'd love to have an observatory, and I actually was uh, the grad student who operated ours when I was at college, uh, we had a little observatory at Kent State that I'd run on Friday nights, um, is that we live right by two freeways. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, we have an awful lot of light noise, even though we're out in the middle of nowhere. Our farm is in a very dark area, except for the gigantic lights from the freeway interchange right behind us. So, Which means that it's not in a very dark area It anymore. is, yeah, there's a lot of light noise. <laughs> the uh, darkest part of the house is underneath my patio on the east side, and uh wouldn't see a lot of sky from there, but there's just there's too much noise and a feeling some light there. So Yanni B says, have you ever thought about writing a sci-fi novel? I have. I was just thinking, I, I can actually go in at nighttime, which is one upside of that much lighting there. Um, but... Uh, the thing about science fiction novels is they take a long time to write, and like everybody else who's a big sci-fi fan, especially somebody who obviously writes a lot, uh, and I do obviously write a lot, I think we turn out the equivalent of like four books a year of a certain length that obviously big difference between a long like doorstop or fantasy novel and uh, the more classic, you know, paperbacks of like 200 pages from back when I was younger. Um, and uh, we turn about four of the smaller variety of a year. But... Um, the thing about writing those is they would take a lot of time out. And the other thing about that is a lot of people want to write a novel just because they want to write a novel. I want to write a novel if a story calls out to me to be written that people are going to enjoy, you know. Uh, I have the luxury of knowing that if I put a novel out, um, it's going to sell pretty decently just because I have an audience that already would like to read something like that, and that's awesome. Uh, however, I'm not going to torment out unless I think it's a story that they should actually have taken their time to read as opposed to just something I put out because I thought it would have a good chance of you know, selling, and uh, that time hasn't come yet. When it does, I will write that thing in a heartbeat, but in the meantime, I'm really happy just to develop all that world-building stuff for other people to use, and, you know, there's, I got a bookshelf full of people right now that have written books inspired by the show, and I love them. I love knowing that we have that many novels we've inspired in some way, but uh, until I actually feel one that's inspired by me to write a novel, I'm not going to go there. Well, Sabotage, thank you very much for your super chat. Could orbital solar generators create problematic changes with Earth-specific energy? 
Generators between the Earth and Sun reduce solar energy, while the others add energy. Both change the energy. Sure. Um, it can. I mean, you'd be talking about a pretty big difference. Uh, the Earth receives something like, what is it? We have 500 million, 510 million square kilometers of surface area on this planet. You can get that in half of a cross-section. Um, you know, a square kilometer of solar panel is going to generate you around a gigawatt up in space. That's as much as a nuclear power plant, right? So uh, you're looking at one out of 500 million to make one regular power plant. Now, he's always talking about big shades, big solar mirrors, things like that, specifically with the intent of changing the weather or blocking sunlight. Absolutely, yeah. You don't have to have it as a net zero process, though. Um, Earth is 6,700 kilometers in radius, so 4,000 miles. Um, the distance up to geosynchronous orbit is about six times that or four times that, somewhere in that zone, with that squared in terms of actual available sunlight coming in. And there's orbits above that, too. We don't not limit just our geosynchronous and even higher orbits to put these things in. And so you can arrange to have all your solar coming, bouncing down, and collecting more. You just have to make sure you're paying attention to what it is. It wouldn't be that hard to calculate. And then you modify as needed. Welcome back to Channel Regular, Isaac Bordeaux. Out of all the inventions you would say are safe bets for the 21st century, what do you think would be the most important or impactful? That is such a hard thing to, to always kind of put into context. Uh, we still have to look at, you know, what increases our production in terms of either energy or robotization of manpower. And those were big factors in, in the 20th century as well as the 19th century. You can't look at the basic factory setup of the 19th century and some improvements in the 20th century with some robotization. Or the you know the invention of your your bigger engines in the, in the 20th century in the 19th century your nuclear power plant in the 20th century and say these weren't big factors they were but at the same time I'm not sure that they qualify as the biggest computers by themselves were very big so were a lot of other you know minor things you wouldn't think about like a paperclip there are a million little tiny inventions that have added that one percent here or there to our productivity that has been a big thing as well as to our standard of living you know it's uh, the refrigerator is a big invention and uh, how about that, the freezer the freezer the ice cream yeah. year round. and the air conditioner uh, not you know, having to have all salted food you didn't have to have you could freeze stuff and you not have to be in a lab too you could actually keep it all year round um you know those are huge game changers in how we live so in terms of the ones i think it was definite for the 21st century that's always hard to say. I really would fall back to the energy ones uh, to much improve solar power and batteries for the moment. I'd love to see fusion, I'd love to see overall solar, but I think for now, our, you know, our generation four or five nuclear reactors, our solar panel improvements, and then the other energy types too. I don't like to just underplay wind and geo like they don't exist, but solar and nuclear are the ones that mass produce energy and, um, and pretty much anywhere. Whereas uh, robotization is also another big one too, but a lot of it's in the software side now. Those little improvements are the software angles that make it easier to keep track of your life, keep track of, you know, your exercise, your calories, your sleep patterns, your overall health. Those are the ones that are going to be the refrigerator of the next century and their standard living increases. So thank you, TKG Wildfire, for your super chat. How would you devise an electric rocket or a space plane, something that can get from the surface to space? Um, in our space planes episode, we detailed... You talked about beaming energy down the surface with solar, for instance. We detailed how you could actually do that same thing with a scramjet. Uh, a scramjet, and to a lesser degree, a ramjet, are kind of your ultimate and really simple devices that only need heat to run. 
people tend to assume that there's something ultra high tech about the design of a scramjet. Uh, it is literally a stovepipe. The geometry of the thing as you build it has it. There's no moving part other than the thing that injects the hot flame in there. And uh, that doesn't have to be produced by that. Imagine for the moment you had an airplane that had a big rectenna to absorb microwaves coming in, and that was just shaped as the engine, the scramjet engine. Now as it's moving forward at a certain speed, it's got microwaves beating down it from the surface, and it's just getting hot air blasted through it by that from the ground. That can take it into space because it doesn't have to obey the rocket equation anymore. It's not losing fuel. It, the energy is coming up from above, and it's using that air-breathing rocket from below. And that's going to keep working at very high altitudes. Um, and then you can also cut the power off to that, too, which means you can let people drive a hypersonic aircraft, comfortable in the knowledge that they start deviating off the course, you can cut that off. Plus, you're tracking it pretty accurately. So it is the thing that lets us start considering having the space plane in your own garage because it's just a hard piece of metal that has to be relatively air-resistant, you know, air obviously, in terms of very streamlined design. But all, that's all it is. It's just the geometry and the metallurgy of the material. And now you have a plane in your house that can take you anywhere around the world, including up to orbit. That is not here yet. And you need the whole infrastructure around that, like with the cell phone. But the cell phone grew up in about 10, 20 years in terms of getting towers all over the place. You can do the same with, micro with microwave beaming so as you can front end the power. So that is a possibility. And I think if we really do want to have spacecraft or airplanes in people's home garage, that's the way to go. Because it also means, and this is the big one, there's no nuclear reactor or hundreds of tons of fuel sitting around in their garage to blow up or get in the shoes. It's just the device and whatever fuel it needs to get airborne. Speaking of different types of metal, Scooter GSP wants to know if the grade of steel used to make armor plating for World War II era warships would make a good basis for the whole plating of orbital structures if it could be manufactured in orbit. I don't actually know what the actual nature of the steel from World War was it one or two, you said? Two. Two. Uh, that's I'm not a metallurgist. Uh, we made a lot of improvements in steel production, but usually my interest in them was more like for railroads as opposed to for armor. We have better steel nowadays, to the best of my knowledge. We have some big improvements in that, so I would tend to assume that would be what we were using, but I'd have to punt on that question because I just I don't know the metallurgy of that armor. Um, thicker is better for the most part. Do you think point-to-point -point travel on Earth using a starship is a good idea? Um, it depends. Do you trust the thing not to run into the ground at high speed? Um, planes moving through the air tend to decelerate very quickly when you don't apply energy to them, especially until they get down to, you know, 100, 200 miles an hour, right? Or kilometers an hour, that zone. The hypersonic stuff is going to slow down real quick. However, uh, there's a lot of kinetic energy there, and it doesn't take that much to turn something like that down into the ground. Or you have to keep in mind, 20 rays things that they could shred that plane if you try to turn it too quickly, right? Ooh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when Sarah and I go flying, uh, which we haven't had to do a chance a couple of weeks now because the weather around here, but, uh, and schedules, but uh, we're flying at, what, 100 knots, uh, maybe 120 knots most of the time. It's not right. that fast. And, um, you know, for context, Mach 1 is like 600 knots, maybe a little bit more than that. And hypersonic speeds, that's like, we usually don't even start until we get to Mach 5 and call it that, like 3,000 knots, something like that. That is a very wide tony radius, and if you are to what we call orbital speed, your tony radius to not get more than a G of turn on yourself while you're whipping the thing around is literally the radius of the planet. That's how orbit works. So <laughs> you can't just instantly pull all these planes to the ground, but at the same time, that is your big limitation is what keeps people who are flying these things 
from crashing them into buildings like we saw of 9-11 20, 21 years back almost now it's hard to believe um and uh you know it's uh obviously the ability to cut the power supply off to those things as well as the ability to track them so carefully because you're giving them power that you could just you know there are alternatives to sending so many microwaves you suddenly need to get rid of a plane in the sky so those are the kind of things we'd have to be willing to do in a more automated sense if we wanted to have that kind of very fast spaceship to ground personal transport available otherwise you make them dock up in orbit <laughs> welcome back merv johnson thank you for your super chat he says he's a big fan of the overlooked NTR and fission rockets. Do they have a place in the future, or do you think that less fickle fusion will become the ultimate engine for the future of interplanetary travel? What was the last one he said was the ultimate engine? Fusion? Fission and NTR. Oh, no, at the end there, he said they're the ultimate one. Oh. Is that fusion? I'm a big fan of the overlooked NTR and fission rockets. Do they have a place in the future, or do you think that less fickle fusion will become okay. the ultimate engine of the future for interplanetary If we get travel. fusion walking, we will absolutely start using fusion a lot more, probably. Right? I always like to put a context on that. My guess is that fusion reactors will always work better um, when they're bigger than when they're small in terms of efficiency and ease. The other thing to keep in mind always is we say, wow, the sun is so powerful. Well, it's actually not. The, the sun is, is huge. It weighs like 10 to the 30-some kilograms. Whereas the power output it puts out is, you know, 10 to 24, right? 10, you get this difference where it takes about 1,000 kilograms of fusion matter or 10,000 kilograms of fusion matter in the core of a star to produce enough actual power to light a light bulb or a light bulb. Most of our engines of fuel supplies are a lot more compact than that because fusion is a very slow process. That's why I say is we can't just, you know, we're not trying to, replicate the circumstances inside a star. As people say about fusion, we're trying to replicate what's going on inside a star. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're trying to replicate what goes on inside a supernova. But we can do a star. That's that's not that bad. <laughs> so uh, that is the one limitation I would say on fusion is unless you can actually get it to power, to mass, you know, when it's power to weight ratio can match other stuff, it replaces everything because there's that hyperabundant cheap fuel supply that lasts forever. That's when that does that. But for engines, unless it's power to weight ratio on that spaceship is that good, you don't replace it with that. And for smaller ones, nuclear can be made pretty tiny. Chemical can be made pretty tiny. Um, you can do things like use compressed gas as your pusher for a lot of things too. Expect to see all of the above in there. But is there a role for fission? Um, Buying that invention, that really good fusion drive that is compact and powerful, then fission would definitely keep playing a role. Very much so. Even if it's because we're using some fission of, you know, um, transuranic elements, we only can make in ground side fusion reactors that are too bulky to move around. Uh, and I, I love NTRs for that purpose. We will see them more in use, I think, when we have more industry up in orbit so that we can do most of the critical radioactive and dangerous bits where they're not going to come land on Earth if something goes wrong. Always a good side note. Yeah. Because rockets explode a lot, right? We've been doing this for 50-some years, 60 years of, of flying rockets up into space, and we don't lose too many, but we, you know, it's, it's, it's not exactly something that happens once a decade. If that thing's got like 20, 30 kilograms of uranium or plutonium in it, that's a major incident, right? Now imagine you've scaled it up a thousand forward, so we're doing real space industry. Now one's blowing up every month. You know, you need to do a little bit better than that. J.W. Norton says, what if an AI ran out of memory or processing power? What if an AI ran out of memory or processing power? Um, I feel like there's something missing from that question. Uh, it needs to, I mean, 
Well, what would uh, happen? Ins insert caffeine here. Uh, it's, uh, what happens to a human when they run out of uh, pasine power? They, uh, they, they, you know, take a nap. Yeah, we take a nap. Uh, it cools down. It, it turns its fans on high and and closes a few windows out. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty much the same things we'd have going on there with ourselves. The memory is probably the bigger one. Is there a limit to how much memory? Oh, how much you can well. Here's the thing to keep in mind, because um, you can keep plugging memory into something, obviously, and they say, oh, it's got more and more memory. Um, well, right, but I can have access to a library with a, you know, with the old card catalog. There's still a limit as to how quickly I can retrieve books from that thing that's going to be based on its size and my ability to find things in it. And that can get to be the point of being physical size. So if you got to run down the hallway to grab the contents of a given book and back, that puts a practical limit on your memory, you know. Kellen Wong says, what are your thoughts about the metaverse and the criticism and fears surrounding it. The metaverse? If someone wants to post up what that is, because I, 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 the first thing that came to my head would be something like the, you know, the Terry Pratchett metaverse, multiverse thing he's got going on there with narrative causality. Um, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't recognize that one. Okay. That's, um, that's striking. Something off my head, though. I seem to recall hearing something about that being like the, the end of big tech as a news article recently, but I'm not picking on that one, unfortunately. Winton Ashley, thank you for your super chat. Do you think that we will ever automate ourselves out of having science as a job occupied by humans? Um, depends on what kind of thing we're defining as human. Your science always is getting done principally by your your biggest, smartest group of people, right? Uh, it's kind of a price loss thing that a lot of your work gets done by those folks that, I was just noticing the camera doesn't really seem to be focusing on very well, does it? We'll deal with that on the commercial break. <laughs> this just does not have any commercials in it. Um, oh my, I just reset on that question. Would you like me to repeat the question? Yeah, prompt me. <laughs> Will we ever automate ourselves out of having science oh my, as my. a job by humans? Okay, so with the very big notation going in there that all of our production of science tends to be done by a relatively small chunk at the very top, so that if you're increasing that new top is, they're getting that work done. Keep in mind that everyone always thinks of robotics and computers as replacing factory workers and putting people out of work there. And of course that does go on too, but what was the first job replaced by computers? Well, it was computers. There was a job title for people who computed for a living. They were the computers, the Harvard computers, or a great group of people to do a little historical background on. They were wonderful people who helped us calculate all sorts of great stuff, and they went away because of the thing we call computers now. If you look at what has been replaced by um, computers, by and large, historically, it's been white-collar jobs more than, than blue-collar jobs. It's just we become so much more productive, and we have so much more things requiring administrative work and paper shuffling, you know, that we just keep producing more of those jobs, uh, and then we automate them out. Um, but those are the ones that tend to go away a lot faster, a lot of the, you know, industrial jobs. Those move around a lot, to be fair, though. Um, but... Uh, you know, we have less factories than we used to. So will we eliminate the need for human scientists? Um, probably. But probably with the caveat that you only do that because you have something that's better than humans doing that. Now that might be, that might be, I don't think that's coming too soon, right? But that might be your classic transhuman who's got brain augmentations. That might be people who are like jumping up on nootropic drugs. That might be an artificial intelligence that you've built specifically to analyze astronomical data and it just pulls them out way better than we do. But we don't know about that yet, but I'd say yes, that probably would be there. Our baseline human is either, either we'll discover all there is a science, and there will be a finite limit to that. This is not going to be a, a box and a box and a box thing. 
there is a finite amount of science because there's a finite universe, as we say. Um, you're going to have that maxed out. That might happen beforehand. So it might be that we just run out of any need for scientists in the next century or two. Interesting thought. So Law of Improbability asks, how would megastructures compartmentalize against accidents? Presumably, arcologies would also face a trade-off between the efficiencies of common infrastructure and redundancy. Um, I would say one of the problems we always have with really big, complex things, and there's nothing kind of more complex than trying to build an artificial ecology, which is kind of what you have with an you know with ecology or space station, is that you really get limited on what you can do with compartmentalization because everything always leaks, right? So you're compartmentalizing in some ways against different types of attack, um, different vectors, things can go wrong in. Like the systems you're using to make sure that an artillery shell hitting the side of your building or your space station is not blowing through all the other ones and leaking the air out is not the same systems you're really relying on, the same defenses you're relying on to keep uh, you know, bacteriological spreads through the, the alcology. And that's a thing to remember when everyone's recycling all their air inside a big old building, like one of them had blocks we're seeing, the old cyberpunk stuff, where it's just a mega scraper full of people and it, it looks like it's been graffitied when it wasn't being shot. Uh, those buildings are ugly and nasty and they'd all be dead inside them fairly soon because they show no signs of real air recycling or cleaning, in which case every time somebody gets a flu or a plague or anything, it just would shoot right through the building, which makes for some great dystopian fiction. From a realistic standpoint, though, what it means is you've got, like, UV burners inside the air vents, and you're scrubbing things through X, Y, or Z, HEPA filters, and so forth. And these are each going to require their own specialized oversight, too. So these are the kind of things you're looking at, is what are the ways things can spread, by accident, by nature, by time erosion, or by direct sabotage, and you, you set up a immune system response to that, right? And that can sometimes overlap with something to do more than one function, and, or does one as a secondary, but for the most part, each one has its own thing. So we have a question from David Risker. What are your thoughts on Don't Look Up? I believe that's a book title or a movie. I don't know it. <laughs> None at the moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. We have a little longer question here from Albert Jackinson. Uh, welcome back to the channel, Albert. Good afternoon, Isaac. Technology exists today to circumvent or lessen the impact of various disabilities. In your opinion, will the idea of disability disappear eventually with advances in technology? Um, I mean, when we talk about concepts themselves disappearing, I would guess probably not. We change what would qualify as disability a lot with shift in time. Um, sometimes because we're identifying new ones. Sometimes because of an Amazon truck pulling up next to my window. <laughs> That's that strange yeah. beeping in yeah, the background. Yeah, that big beepy noise. That is light there. <laughs> Advances in technology. Uh, <laughs> I mean, now if you can't get out to the store, you can have it delivered to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Um, but... Uh, Wow, that, that will just completely clear your brain out. What was Albert asking? If disabilities would disappear oh, yeah. uh, because of technologies, right. we are seeing a huge impact on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about sure. um, some of the circumstances that we've seen more locally with some of the uh, folks that have lost limbs and the how quickly that they're able to mm -hmm. actually get adaptive technology to mm -hmm. be able to walk or write or and there's, a, there's a variety of advances sure. that are not that are available now that weren't available even 50 years ago we have a friend i would say we're trying to avoid saying their name or where we know them from um on something that's washed by tens of thousands of people but 
uh, one of our friends uh, lost the use of her. She had to have amputated most of one hand, all of another hand, and both of her uh, feet. Uh, and uh, they had her already fitted for prosthetic uh, legs very soon thereafter. Less than and, two months later. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is, it's amazing how quickly that progress has been made in my own lifetime. And we are going to see it into that kind of process. You know, that, that is going to improve. When we get to the point where we can do, you know, activated regrowth or cloning of individual limbs or organs, too, as an even better thing. But that prosthetic technology has been improving so much. You know, cochlear implants, I think those were invented while I was alive. Or at least that's not their main usage for hearing. We are getting really close to being able to do artificial eyes. It depends on what yeah. the artificial, you know, what the damage is, the eyeball. Will that see the end of our disabilities? They do do some vision transplants. Yeah. I, I mean, when my grandfather lost an eye at six years old, 100 years ago, they just replaced it with a glass eye. Now they have a lot of ability to... Mm -hmm. We've gotten a lot better with no Reconnect and fix some of those issues. Mm -hmm. We've gotten a lot better with no reconnections on that too, but there's a lot of... Work still to be done on that, unfortunately, too, but it is definitely coming along. You know, we'll get into the point we'll be able to actually give people heat sensitivity, touch sensitivity in these organs. Vision is high data transport, so it's mostly about connecting the uh, the actual artificial eye to the brain. But um, these will improve. We'll get rid of all disabilities. We'd find new ones, I think. Um, you could even get to the point, that, I mean, little things can be a new disability in some kind of context. Uh, I joke sometimes that if we, uh, you know, people say, why is there so much pain in the universe? And say, if we lived in a universe where the worst thing that anybody ever got was like a, a hangnail, people would still be screaming about that. So we will find there always something new to to improve. But that's as it should be. You know, some say that's a weakness of some sort we need to toughen up. Well, it doesn't want to be tough, but... When you have a problem of insufficiency, disability, anything like that, seeking to be able to eradicate them, even the small, is not a bad thing at all. That's, that's, that's what we do. We try to find these options as stress options because we're not telling people they have to take these, you know, because they might be, sometimes they don't want to, some things they just personally don't want to remove, or just they don't like the new treatment for it. These are options. You know, the goal is to give people not a perfect cereal box, but the 50 different types of cereal you can buy at 3 o'clock in the morning at Walmart. You know, that's the, the goal there. So... I don't think there will be an end to disabilities anytime soon, but I think we'll find that we just keep getting better and better treatments for more and more of them. So we have a super chat from Horace the Great. Thank you. How long would a Kugelblitz star drive take me to get to Alpha Centauri? Uh, that entirely depends on the Kugelblitz in question. Assume that that one could probably pull off a 1G acceleration for its lifetime, because again, it depends on... It, all a Kugelblitz really is, is a black hole that's spitting out a ton of radiation. Um, and it's doing so at an efficiency and conversion rate that is very close to straight E equals MC squared. As a result of that, you can get up to some very high speeds. You can get up to something that is truly relativistic. So a flight to Alpha Centauri in under a decade is very much on the table with a Kugelblitz black hole starship. And then for other ones besides that, Assume the distance in light years cut in half is your approximate flight time. Approximate. You might do better, you might do worse, but there are a lot of other problems traveling at that kind of speed too. So that's probably about the best you get. So the Space Texan is asking, if nuclear war was imminent, could we induce Kessler syndrome to prevent the use of ICBM missiles? No. no. ICBMs are one of the few things that still work very well uh, during Kessler syndrome. Most ICBMs are following on a suborbital path. You know, you can fire them straight up, straight down, as it were. Or around they're only in the air for 30 to 40 50 minutes whatever it is depending on the flight time um as they're going into a very short drop um 
Castle Syndrome is something that rips stuff apart over the course of, you know, weeks, months, maybe as little as days or hours if there's a extreme version of it, you know? Uh, and at that point in time, you would be a lot better off just detonating nukes in high orbit where those were flying by and trying to get them that way. Uh, thing about nuclear bombs, they're very sturdy in some ways because we usually make them out of uranium because it's a handy metal for using for that purpose as the blast. Um, but at the same time, they are incredibly fragile. You know, um, and then there's a film called Broken Arrow. It was one of the ones with John Travolta and oh, I can't remember his name. Another actor. Uh, and at one point in time, Travolta is the bad guy thing and screaming at somebody. They, they've stolen some nuclear weapons. They're having a firefight near them. The guy starts stop shooting the nuclear bombs and uh, or nuclear bomb. And the thing about those is you give yourself radiation poisoning from breaching or one that's got a plutonium warhead, though probably not. You're not going to accidentally set one off. That, that's just not how that works. It's not, uh, you know, it's not nitroglycerin. It takes extreme precision to set one off. So almost any damage to a nuclear bomb that's not well designed inside its actual threshold for flight is going to disable that thing. They are, they are anything but indestructible. Raven609, thank you for your super chat. And uh, he says, if you ever run out of video ideas, you should start making Orion's Arm lore videos. Um, you know, our first video was kind of an Orion's Arm lore video. Uh, that Megastructures episode, which at the bottom of it, you can see the cover, it does say with Steve Bowers. I mean, I wrote thing up, but I've used mostly, it was almost entirely his art for that, him and a few other folks, um, from Orion's Arm. And because the context that time was, it wasn't supposed to really be a science video. It was supposed to be a science look at a lot of sci-fi concepts writers could use in their work. Because uh, at the time, I, I just, I didn't have any idea for a story I'd like to write, but I was enjoying working with authors a lot. And going back to that first or second question from today about writing a sci-fi novel, and um, I'd always said, you know, these are these beautiful ideas, they'd be great sources to be, you know, in a story. And, you know, one of the reasons that I like Orion's Arm is it has so many of those written up. Orion's Arm is kind of a shared uh, theme source for hard sci-fi. And... Um, I think that I could very easily do quite a few of the concepts that were there, but there's always some really great entries on that. That might be a fun thing to do at some point in time, see if the Orion's Arm folks want me to narrate them. They could have their own channel, though, I think, though. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of good material there, and there are probably people with much better voices than mine just to narrate that material. But there's some amazing content up there, so... I think this will be the last... Videoizing. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I think this will be the last question before the break. Uh, it kind of ties in with that same art <laughs> concept. Uh, again, from TKG Wildfire, thank you for your super chat. What designs will we see from a space-faring human society like Art Deco was implemented in train designs for decades? One more time, please. What designs will we see from a space-faring human society similar to how Art Deco was implemented in train designs for decades? Um... You know, there's a. I've heard people say things like, uh, you know, rockets are beautiful, or, or you know, planes are, are gorgeous. You know, and and I think that people tend to forget that this is an example of. I think it may be called the Vitruvian school, the Vitruvian school, but uh, the idea that beauty follows um, form and function. Um, they they look pretty because they or they look awesome because you know what they do. Um, and I think that where space design is concerned. We used to have all these like UFO-shaped sci-fi spaceships, or these more rock, you know, things that look more like either a straight-up rocket 
or they look like a plane. That was the all design science fictional artifacts for what things in space would look like. One of the things I loved about the movie Alien, the the original Alien, um, with Sigourney Weaver on it, was that picture of the Nostromo, the spaceship they were as it flies in the shot, and something that we all see a little bit with George Lucas's Star Destroyers in the original Star Wars film, was we suddenly started seeing designs that were not aerodynamic at all. They were huge monstrosities with antennas and stuff sticking out of them, because there's no, they're not going to land on a planet. They're never landing on a planet. They have a shuttle that does that. They go through space where there is no air resistance. And so I don't know what we're going to see in terms of like stylus from space, but, you know, I don't think that we'd see anything streamlined coming out of that. So they usually thought is in a space kind of environment. And a lot of the fiction you see from the 60s and 70s, we see the, uh, the aluminum foil and streamlined effect on everything. And I don't think that's what we're going to be seeing from those designs. So... I think, yes, we will absolutely see reflections of those designs hitting the Earth because, you know, what goes on there will be the cool new front, the new fashion, as it were. You might see people wearing things that look more like a spacesuit as we get those a little bit more like something you'd actually want to wear as a human. Spacesuits are a monstrosity the way they're worse than battle armor, which is not comfortable. <laughs> 80 pounds of gear will make any day horrible. But uh, I do think we'd see reflections of that down on our planet with time because that's where the new fashion, the new cutting edge is going to be a lot of times. I wouldn't go ahead and go to break. Uh, we'll be back in about three or four minutes and take more of your questions. So we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get a drink and a snack and get more questions into our moderators for the second half of the show. We never manage to get to every question, plus many folks miss the live show and catch it on replay, so I encourage everyone to leave their questions in the comments below where myself or others often answer them. One that got asked after last month's show was from Salvataz, who asks, won't beaming energy down to Earth from orbital solar generators increase the specific energy of Earth, increasing the heat and average temperatures? Is that going to be a problem? Is that much different than releasing potential energy stored in things like hydrocarbons? This is a great question and one that comes up in various forms in some of our deep planning for the long distant future, and that's about the idea that even an energy abundant society can only get so many folks onto a planet before the energy turned into heat would get too high. In the short term, energy beaming as a replacement for Earth-side power generation represents no heat problem, but in the very long term it can be. Now this is a problem even with really good fusion reactors or black hole generators, because they still make heat, and most of the energy they produce comes out as heat, not electricity. Possible solutions include blocking the non-visible infrared light from the sun, which is much of it, or erecting enormous space towers to serve as heat radiators, something we call forest when we looked at it in Matryoshka World some years back. In Larry Niven's Ring World, one species even moved their planet further from the sun. However, one thing that tends to get overlooked is that whether you're collecting solar power in space or simply building your reactors up there, the microwaves you beam down get converted to electricity at about 85% efficiency, with about 15% turning to heat during the reconversion on the ground, and maybe as low as 10%. Alternatively, any heat engine on the ground is lucky to have even half its energy coming out as electricity rather than heat. Similar problems exist for solar panels. So in this context, energy beaming or even running down superconductors from huge space towers is letting you get more electricity usefully in play on a planet per the amount of heat added. All that energy ends up as heat eventually, mind you, but anything that is turned to heat before we even get to use it as electricity, even once, is at best getting maybe a partial recycle going up a space tower configured as a Seebeck effect thermopile, and 10% heat to electricity is about the best those might realistically recover. 
as a result we might eventually end up doing orbital power generation and beaming it even if we came up with a super cheap fusion reactor tomorrow, simply because we didn't want any of the heat generation occurring on planet, where the heat of conversion of microwaves to electricity via rectenna is again very low, as we'll be running it down superconductors from orbital infrastructure. All at the same time, we may use a lot of shades and mirrors to minimize sunlight coming into Earth, especially those frequencies that have little use to life, either for photosynthesis or vision. Every planet will have a heat budget based on how much energy it is creating locally or absorbing, and its rate of heat emission, and might also need reservoirs for handling temporary overproduction. This is also true of space habitats, and it is quite likely the method of aggressive diplomacy or embargo for the future would be turning heat on a planet or megastructure to slowly raise its temperature until folks gave in. As a quick announcement before we get back to the show, as I mentioned at the end of this Thursday's episode, the RAND Corporation is hosting a conference on March 7th and 8th on the future of space cooperation between the US and Japan in Santa Monica, and I will be giving the closing remarks on the second day and David Kipping from Cool Awards is keynoting on day one, and there will be plenty of other great presenters in between. If you'd like to join, in person or online, I'll attach the link for registration in the episode description. It will actually be my first in-person presentation I've done since COVID hit, and also my first time back in my birth state of California since I was two, and since it's been a particularly cold winter here in Northeast Ohio this year, I'm looking forward to seeing Santa Monica in March. Alright, with all that said, let's get back to the show and more of your questions. And we're running behind, sorry. Yeah. Wait, I suppose it would help if I actually used the microphone, (laughs) sorry. My... I got a little distracted on that one because I got up my coffee, came back, and I saw the the play on the the screen of what was the the live stream mid-break, and it was that earlier question about energy, uh, uh, specific energy for Earth. So sometimes when the, about halfway through the month, I'll decide to prep all the slides and everything for the live stream and that midway break, and uh, I have been sometimes taking questions from then I'll just write up something, record it, and then I kind of forget it until the actual day of the event. So, <laughs> barely we answered that question twice today. Whoops. All right. Well, they should feel well-loved and well-blessed, and we're moving on to Bear666. <laughs> with a question about what mechanisms could facilitate a sentient hive mind outside of telepathy, pheromones, or some type of brain chip interface. Besides telepathy, well, um, I mean, if you want to think of our own neurons as an example, we use just a direct neurochemical or synaptic connection. That's not removed from the table, especially because you might have something like, imagine you had a neuroconnective moss that was basically a substrate for passing information around, and all the creatures that walked across that were kind of like plugged into the local Wi-Fi good as it were of that MOS, even though it was by electrochemical you know, reception. There's also a speed aspect of this. Things don't have to move at a very quick rate. It might be where every time they stand still for more than a minute, the connection's re-established and they update. So things don't have to move too quickly. Uh, you could even theoretically do something weird like uh, semiconductors or superconductors built into the actual structural plant, you know, crystals, for instance, or even ice, you could potentially have whole pathways melted through. There was that great example from Alastair Reynolds' short story *Glacial*, where uh, the uh, you know they they they're studying these worms, and uh, you know it's not the worms that are actually causing you know some kind of higher intelligence to be there. It's rather the little tunnels they cut through a glacier, and they're forming an actual computer of that glacier. 
and that's really a wonderful short story that I just spoiled for everybody there. Uh, yeah. That's that's not the most important part though. I'd, I'd still recommend that. That's my favorite character in it too from his series, Neil Covain. So, oh sorry, Neville Covain. My favorite character, Vespa's name. Jiro Afasano, thank you for your super chat. He says, "Hi guys, Isaac. Do you know how a black hole can be more massive than another if they all technically have infinite mass?" Thank you and best regards. Well, they don't have infinite mass. Theoretically, they have infinite mass density. Um, insofar as they be compressed into a point-like object, we don't know they actually get compressed into a point-like object. By the way, that's that's an assumption we made for a long time that is very debated, and we just don't have the we don't have enough knowledge of quantum gravity scale stuff to be able to say what happens. Um, a lot of us tend to doubt whether they think we compress beneath Planck density, for instance, which is you know where you can squeeze a whole universe into something the size of a cup, but still not infinite. You know, anything anything finite compared to infinity is still tiny and small. Um, black holes, though, have different mass. What happens is they're all getting compressed into a very tiny area, and that causes them to seem like they would have, uh, you know, an infinite density. However, like the event horizon, that's entirely based on the mass, and it's linear in radius to that mass, which has the interesting effect that if you double the mass of a black hole, you are cubing the volume inside that real black hole, the event horizon, and you are quadrupling the surface area of that event horizon. So that has interesting effects that we care a lot about when we're talking about ways to use black holes for hawking radiation drives or for building giant birch planets out of. Yes. So Wiley Berggren, hi Isaac, what are your thoughts on science fiction and video games? Do you feel like any of them do the genre justice and do you have a favorite? Um... The episode I just got done working on it spends a lot of time talking about Mass Effect. That's our Synthetic Life uh, episode uh, for next Sci-Fi Sunday in a couple weeks here. So that one's kind of dominating my mind, but there's some great ones out there. Uh, channel favorites, uh, Space Engine, of course. Um, you've got, uh, well, Sins of a Solar Empire was one I enjoyed quite a lot. Um, Stellaris, obviously. I did a mod for that one, actually, that's got my voice in there for the computer. <laughs> that was fun to do. Um, the real... Isaac yeah. AI. <laughs> Galactic Civilizations uh, 2 and 3. Uh, Mu 2. Um, it was actually Masters of Orion 2 and 3. Um, and uh, there's just a whole host of them. Uh, I liked the original Dune 2000. Uh, well, sorry, the original Dune 2 version 2000. I loved that game. That was a great game. Obviously, the start for the uh, real-time strategies genre. The Stormland says, how long would it take us to build a Dyson Sphere or Swarm? Potentially as little as 30 years. Um, it depends on what you're, what you're building towards and, and what you've got to build with. You have a lot of power to work with, right? Uh, let's say that hypothetically we are just trying to englobe a star with a thin sheet of statites, right? Or solar mirrors, basically, uh, to do a Chicago thrust. Or how quickly can you do that? Well, how quickly does it take to make a sheet of tin foil the size of a Dyson sphere? That's basically what you're getting at in terms of your mass production. And that comes down to asking what the mass that is, what the output of that star is, probably lowering it by an order of magnitude to take into account all the inefficiencies and travel times, and that's probably what it is. So you figure out how much aluminum someone could extract from a solar system to make that, what the mass would be of something that say one micron thick, what the surface area of a Dyson sphere would be at uh, whatever distance you're putting them at, which might be like a tenth of an AU, and you run the numbers, and uh, you probably could get something less than a year in a case that simple. Now, for something more like a full-on um, 
you know, full of rotating habitats and all that that we usually envision here, or something like a matrioska brain where you need a lot more delicate components. Um, that's probably going to take you centuries, if not millennia. It just depends on what you're aiming to do and if you're in a hurry. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. I have a question about artificial intelligence. Why would you create a human level or greater AI? Ram Dan. Um, there's actually very little reason to create a human level AI because um, we already have a bunch of them. You know, we, they were not in a shortage of them. There is no short supply of humans. And I don't know anyone who, I mean, uh, some of the folks specifically in the Udermania uh, mania that believes that the main purpose of our efforts should be to make life as pleasant for humans as possible, um, will argue that we should be trying to replace humans in any kind of work capacity. Um, however, and that would presumably even include creative efforts in a lot of cases, because then you're not reliant on any other human for your creativity, even though you can go do your own. Um, I don't agree with that myself, uh, though I understand the reason behind it. It's not like it's a horrible idea compared to some other ones I've heard. Um, however, outside of context, we have a surplus of humans in a civilization that's highly automated. We arguably already do, um, in terms of keeping them preoccupied. Um, we have plenty of work for folks to do at the moment, for instance, but we have to have problems finding anybody who wants to fill it. Other times we haven't gotten a fork to go around, but by and large, we have not had problems finding new things for people to do. Uh, strong AI, things smaller than human, and, and, you know, that's a new bracket. We don't have anything filling that right now, and those are valuable, because they're the ones that say, you know, let's say somebody who has an IQ 10 points higher, uh, than his fellow scientists is the person who's doing, you know, half the new breakthroughs. You know, um, you know, ones that really turned out under something like Price's Law, which I'd, I'd recommend everybody just Wikipedia up because that would probably give you a better answer than I'd give them off the top of my head during the little question. Um, that person is producing a lot of your science. You make an AI or a trans human who's just 10% smarter or is more 10 IQ points higher, they might suddenly turn out, you know, an entire generations worth of scientific effort in their lifetime than the few peers. Um, and in which case, those folks are replaced. Uh, and again, that's probably what AI would be most useful to us is in that area, those things we can't do. The other thing is a lot of times, it's not about trying to make a generalized intelligence that's smart enough person, it's about making a specialized intelligence that's smart enough person. The intelligence that's able to do something that we don't even really want to do, like simultaneously track every airplane going over a country to make sure that they all are, you know, being informed of everything they need to know to fly safely. You know, that's the sort of thing that a computer is just perfect for, especially an AI that's designed around that goal. So don't assume that an AI that's smaller than people at something like, even like something like science or music composition would actually be something that you'd have a conversation with and think was, wow, that guy's smart. You might think, geez, this AI is a drooling idiot, but they're brilliant at that particular thing. That's probably more likely to be a case in a lot of cases too for what we want to design. Um, but by and large, the area of neo-human, it only only has the value of good communication and reality based on modern chatbots. I'm betting you don't need anything even close to as intelligent as a human to be able to pull off a conversation most people find satisfactory for entertainment purposes. And other than that, there are 8 billion of us right now, or close to 8 billion of us. It shouldn't be that hard to find a good conversational partner. It's meet your taste, so. <laughs> Mr. Super says, what are your thoughts on NASA's Luna Gateway's design? Is it what we need now, or should it be bigger? Um, oh, well, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're asking me if it should be bigger, and the answer, of course, is always yes. Please. <laughs> um, I, I, I love bigger, to... Bigger, bolder, no. better, says yeah. Isaac Arthur. It, it works better. Like, if brute force isn't getting the job done, you're not using enough of it. Um, almost all of our problems with dealing with space right now come from the fact that we're trying to build things that are super light and, and minimal, right? 
Because, you know, why spend another $30 billion to have extra shielding on a spaceship to get to the moon is kind of the idea. Um, I liked the big steps forward because it streamlines out so many problems. Um, however, that we're not there yet. We need to actually be able to access some place like the moon to get a lot of raw materials that we'd have to fly through heavy rocket ships to get there. Uh, the Falcon Heavy might do a lot of that for us too. You know, these new designs make that a lot cheaper and they're more viable. I think the Lunar Gateway is worth building. I, I, you know, I would love to see a scaled up version, but I'll take it. I'll take it as it is. You know, that, that would do the job for me just fine. So Tyrion is new here. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Tyrion. Do you guys think that photonic computers will be a viable addition to quantum computing? Um... Well, let me start by saying that I am not an expert on either quantum computers or obviously optronics. Um, and I can't answer. You stumped I, I, I him. Like, the newbie stumped yeah. him. <laughs> it, I, it, there's potential there, but not enough for me to tell you if that's like the big next step on quantum computing. No, I can't, I can't tell you that. I'm not sure there really are a lot of big next steps on quantum computing. I, I, it's got its value. Quantum computers definitely has you know, its value. We did an episode on it. People overhype the heck out of quantum computing a lot of times too. So I tend to poo-poo it myself just because it gets so much overhype. It's got its value. So Randy Smith says, how would a heavy earth achieve space travel? At what mass would the surface gravity prevent a spacecraft from achieving orbit using chemical rockets? Um, you know, when we did the Super Earths episode recently, we kind of looked at that question a bit more. And what you see there is that basically you're not going to find a planet that would actually have a, a surface you could really live on, uh, even if they were, you know, quite the super skeletal mutant, um, if you get above two surface gravities. And from a practical standpoint, that means that you're not going to get an escape velocity of that planet or an orbital velocity more than double what we got here, right? Uh, we stepped through the individual math there of that episode to show them how to do that. It's not just a perfect scale up. You get that with a with a rocket. That's the stuff we send to Mars has to get those kind of velocities in them. Is it harder? Yes, it is. Is it doable? Absolutely. But the other thing to remember is we have a lot of things that are not dependent on on that equation to get into space. All those launch loops and things we discussed on the show, those are not new ideas. Some of them are, but like the basic launch loop, those rail cans, those predate rocketry as a concept. The technology is there if you want to do it, and on a planet with more thicker atmosphere, for instance, it gets a lot easier to start doing buoyancy to hold up heavy members, right? You get new options that, I wouldn't say cancel out the difficulty, but make some of that, they give you a little bit better odds. So I don't think there is a maximum gravity for a planet that we really call a inhabited planet in that regard. Barring, obviously, all artificial ones we discussed, like giant shovels built around black holes, that you're not getting off those with a chemical rocket. <laughs> Moff Tucker. Hey, Isaac, have you seen The Expanse? I've only watched a bit so far, but I was curious to hear your thoughts on the scientific realism portrayed in the series, specifically on the gravity on the ship. Right. Um, I have not seen season five all the way through for The Expanse yet, and I don't remember if there was a season six. I also haven't read anything past book, I can't if it was book four or book five. Um, and uh, I kind of try, try to stop about the same place. I know the Devotion plot a little bit. I like the book more than I like the TV show, but the TV show is great. It's got some good casting, which is always nice. But I think I was actually using it as a point recently in, in one of our uh, episodes was that there is such a difference between, you know, the, the Jim Horton of the TV show versus the Jim Horton of the books. 
Uh, Science-wise, I give them a lot of points. Um, the two authors of that, uh, of that book series and then the, whoever's been doing the screenplay on it have kept pretty good scientific realism where they can for a sci-fi show. It's way better than Star Trek, for instance. I, I've never been quite clear why Star Trek always had the reputation of the sciencey, brainy show and Star Wars the completely fantasy show because they both have all sorts of crazy made-up science that doesn't exist in them. Uh, worse than Doctor Who in some cases, which is not a one that's... Who cares about science? Um, but um, they do mess some things up that are kind of critical to me, the core plot lines. Uh, for instance, there's water and air shortages on, in the asteroid belt, and they have the Epstein Drive. The Epstein Drive is this cheap fusion reactor that's like your ideal fusion torch. Um, there is no energy uh, deficit in such a system. If you can burn things at 1G for you know, hours and hours at a time to move ice from the inner system into the asteroid belt, then that means that you have megawatts of energy or power available per person. There is no air water or shortages or things like that in there. So the entire, so I would say, conflict that we see in that series is Hokum. <laughs> but it's beautifully written Hokum. And, <laughs> and uh, they do a much better job with most of the other science besides that. Like the... Uh, the ecology aspects that we see on I can't remember which moon of, of Jupiter it was um, that they have the with the with the biologists for what we see in season two of book two um, that is done wonderfully about how the ecology broke down there in their habitats there um, there's some great stuff in there and it is a great series the one Meeper Mc uh, something very long and complicated Meeper McMeep maybe <laughs> if a fusion <laughs> reactor is more efficient. The bigger it is. Would a smaller reactor on a torpedo that can accelerate for 15 G's for about 20 seconds sound semi-realistic? I don't know if we can actually already do that with a normal chemical rocket. Um, I'm not sure why you'd at that point throw the fusion reaction in there. Um, this is an issue that we have a lot of times in science fiction. It's based on the drives available. People always wonder why things aren't moving around faster, why you would have big bulky carrier ships. Uh, the problem is that all these things moving around and darting around very fast that seem like they'd be great for automation with a robot and some drones and torpedoes don't actually work very well inside the available known physics because they tend to forget you run out of fuel real quick when you're doing things like that. Um, nuclear energy fusion or fission is non-optimal. Uh, non-optimal for things that accelerate briefly and quickly. You're probably going to do better with chemical rockets there or with nuclear fission chain reactions also known as h-bombs <laughs> so if your if your torpedo is being propelled by h-bombs um then potentially yes and uh then so if you want to have the kind of high speed replacement for chemical either you're using some kind of very dense electric battery extremely dense electric battery that's discharging ions out at incredible rates or more likely just use antimatter antimatter is your ultimate chemical fuel source as it were okay <laughs> Felix D, welcome back. He says, hello, everyone. Substitute. Chemical fuel substitute. <laughs> Continue, sorry. Felix D says, hello, everyone. Could AI act as ambassadors and reflect, resolve conflicts? What do we mean by AI is always that big question. Um, think about the alien ambassador. Because, I mean, obviously, we say alien, we're talking about extraterrestrials, but that's a term that goes back for that, even dealing with, like, human alien situations of our neighbors, just our diplomatic neighbors and there's one that's obviously on everyone's mind right now, diplomacy-wise. We could send an alien ambassador to another planet, and what we would probably do instead is create from the ground floor up an actual AI that was designed with that in mind. 
what's the perfect ambassador, someone who's still loyal to their own country, but completely understands the peoples that he's going to speak to, you know, has heavily immersed in them. With an artificial intelligence building a person, um, be the ambassador or who has a kind of a mixed human robot alien psychology going on that's designed with the intent of allowing them to perfectly understand human interactions and cultural and background while at the same time remembering the influences and needs of their background to be the one for it. So someone might say taking that to an extreme, as it were, could we use it for something a lot closer to home, which is, you know, our own diplomatic interactions with our neighbors? And the answer was probably yes. Don't assume, though, that an AI would ever be neutral. I do not know why in science fiction we always see this assumption that computers are going to be fair and neutral and logical, as though these things were synonymous, which they are not either. I would never trust an artificial intelligence to be any less, you know, biased than the humans that not just the humans that programmed it either just that's that's how that works that's that's a good flow into the next question from eccentricity you typically discuss future humans not too differently from modern ones what do you think about significant technological augmentation that could make our descendants unrecognizable um i guess it kind of depends what you mean unrecognizable you mean mentally or physically you know if it which is more human? A human who's got a huge mind augmentation inside them to the point that they're they are very alien in psychology, or someone who's got a normal human brain on them but is running around on like a centaur chassis, you know, a human centaur. Um, and that's not a, you know, that is, that's not a rhetorical question. Um, I don't know what the answer that actually would be in a lot of these cases because it depends on what you mean. And that's kind of a little bit subjective. Um, on the show, we always talk about a future humanity that's recognizable to us because that is the the kind of the plot device of the tales inside the of the episodes to let people actually see and envision this. Do I think in the 25th century the typical humans could be like the human from nowadays? No. Um, we're not really all that much like the people from the 16th century either, truth be told. There's a lot of similarities because we haven't got major augmentation, but don't think that your psychology is really all that similar. Your worldview is very similar to theirs. And we start throwing in cybernetics, augmentation, genetics, things like that. Yeah, those are going to shift things around a lot. I don't know what a human looks like come the 30th millennia in terms of psychology, behavior, whatever it is. You'll see our episode on superpowers or cyborgs for some of the more extreme stuff that could potentially happen with that, mentally, physically, etc. Uh, or our episode Smart Matter at the end of this month because we talk about that too. Uh, not this month, March. But... Uh, I don't really expect the average typical human of, you know, millennia from now to really be that much like thus of a now, but I would expect there to be just to still exist, right? I would think there would still be humans who are, as we will say, natural, so to speak, of nowadays still around then. I think we simply see a big divergence of what's around, you know? Remember, when we talk about something like evolution, we say, oh, things are much more complicated than the simple life back at the beginning of things. Um, the world descended from that theoretical amoeba as it were. Remember that most life on this planet by both mass and certainly by quantity is single-celled, you know, simple organisms. So don't assume that the future necessarily means there's no simple regular humans around either. Ishmael Ark says, if Hawking radiation was proven, would that mean we could retrieve information lost in a black hole? Or would spaghettification make anything that fell into one unrecognizable? Um, well, hockey radiation is, is hard to prove in the first place unless you're actually making them up in a, in a lab because all the naturally occurring ones, you need to get dangerously close to one that you have a chance with really sensitive equipment of picking it up. Remember, your typical hockey radiation of these things from a normal black hole is designed to irradiate it out of like 
10 to the 60th years, which is a trillion, 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 trillion years in the future. Um, even for something that's got the mass of a star, that's a very low power output. You know, <laughs> that's in that range where you probably would need to have our finest, most sensitive equipment right next to it to pick that up. Uh, now, the ones you might make in an actual lab, they're only megatons or gigatons of black hole. You can pick those up, and that would probably be how you actually prove that Hawking radiation existed. Um, otherwise, you got to make a trip for about a thousand light years to get the nearest one and then build some incredibly good apparatus hoping to pick it up. What you probably mean, though, is the accretion energy of the stuff as it follows in the black hole, and that will cause a lot of noise. Realistically, I don't think that you would ever be able to block that up enough to be able to recover signals near there. Uh, there's always going to be some kind of accretion disk, especially as we get near it, there's going to be some junk from us, even our exhaust from our spaceship as we drew new is going to form an accretion disk around it. Um, I would say, though, in terms of the concept of, like, the firewall with black holes, that information thing, that one's still being debated, and I don't think anyone's, in my mind, conclusively won it yet, so that's still on the theory side, and we might have to wait to test that out. Okay, so we're coming up to 5 o'clock. The question for you is, do you want to uh, answer a few more questions? Do a Try round. a lightning round. Uh, like a five-minute lightning round. Yeah, five-minute lightning round, see if I can actually pull it off. Can you, can you try like 30-second answers? Oh. <laughs> oh, that's really lightning. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, <laughs> if you want to do shorter than that, we have about 10 or 15 questions left in the queue. Well, let's just fire through at least 10 of them. All right. The tardigrade. Will our society and government institutions be able to withstand or adapt to the exponential progress of technology and the transformation of everything from the economy to our sense of self? No, no. Every government it basically is a temporary hoarding pattern to be replaced by the next generation that understands it better and overthrows it. Eccentricity. What fundamental technologies will need the most development to make Mars colonization successful? Uh, carbon dioxide filtration would be a big one, and uh, really something that's able to withstand UV radiation a lot better will probably be another button that we really make progress on. Oh, and hydrogen storage. Valdarg, there are many currently hooked up to an artificial lungs, ECMO machine, and those using artificial hearts or dialysis for kidneys. Could all of these be put together to start a brain in a jar? Probably. I think in case of a brain in a jar, though, all you'd actually have to be feeding it is that basic nutrient, oxygen, and sugar. I, I, I read that wonderful animation that Jeremy Joswick did that I like to use that shows that. Probably just sugar, oxygen, and, and some other nutrients. Okay, Harkonnen wants to know, how would a future civilization go about defending itself from a gamma ray burst? Uh, I think in the episode with Joe Scott that we did looking at five ways to the walk it in and how we could stop it, we suggested putting up a big, thin shield, like a big thing of tinfoil about, you know, one millimeter across and uh, the size of a planet, so one small asteroid's worth, in between us and that star. We start going that phase and just kind of holding it there. Another super chat from TKG Wildfire. Thank you, TKG. Match effect drives appear to bypass the requirement of propellant by altering mass and altering by altering energy. What would the effects of drives that bypass the rocket equation? Do you say mass effect or mock effect? Mock effect. Okay. Um, what's the question again? <laughs> Can they bypass propellant by bypassing? by alternating mass by alternating if, if they work as people say they do same for like a pitch drive or a differential drive um there's a few of these that are kind of suggested hypothetically to exist then yes those those actually do have the potential to do, do, do that but i don't expect them to be able to violate that quick addendum to the previous one you wouldn't leave a big shield there you probably have a, a, a something you could inflate with an explosion like an h-bomb that would blow the shield up 
so that you're not got a big things just hanging in the sky all the time. You can have many of them and just turn on like it's needed. Uh, continuing. <laughs> By Hadik Keen. Hey, Isaac. I want to thank you for producing the best futuristic content on the internet. It has inspired me to start reading sci-fi and start world building to my own universe. Awesome. And I want to thank you for just giving me a compliment as opposed to a question because it gave me a plain chance to cool down. It's hard to answer things like that. So. Oh, next one. When we start seeing the smoke come out of Isaac's oh, ears, we'll know that yeah. the uh, that the uh, lightning round is over. <laughs> for anybody who does like writing, there are a lot of good sci-fi forms, but uh, there are a lot of people in our Facebook group, Science of Future with Isaac Arthur, which is linked to the episode description, that love to kick these ideas back and forth. And uh, you might, ha- might like to join just to be able to talk to some of them about this stuff too. Cozy, hi. Thank you for your super chat. Hey, Isaac, why hasn't any country invested in a rocket sled launch? They reduce rocket costs massively and only use existing tech. Thank you. Love the content. Thank you very much. Um, I would say mostly because it requires a start from a new level of architecture down. Most countries are assuming that one of the, the big groups, you know, which really, you know, that's the U.S., Russia, and maybe the EU or JAXA that really do all that major research for that, not the EU, the ESA. Um, and uh, ESA, uh, and nobody really wants to go and build one of those things on the ground floor up. They haven't really got the folks because most of your most skilled researchers for that kind of thing are already with one of those top agencies because that's where they went to be able to satisfy their curiosity, not to mention learn the trade better. And most of those groups are not really wanting to invest that per se. I would say we probably would be looking at that right now if it hadn't been for all the success we've had with reusable rockets in the last uh, decade. A super chat from Winton Ashley. Thank you, Winton. What do you think are the biggest human barriers to having interplanetary travel for the untrained or mentally unscreened masses, such as onset of various psychosis in transit, ignorance causing major issues, and space sickness, etc.? We have the advantage that we're not going to actually need to use untrained personnel for any of that until we've you know, got the point where we're moving thousands and thousands of people around at that, which means we're doing it at economic prices. At that point in time, it's like a cruise ship. You have some people that just won't suit it for a period, but by and large, most people will be able to acclimate to it fairly quickly. And more to the point, we wouldn't try to make them acclimate to it across the board. We would do what we always do, which is try to make that hostile environment more acclimated to us. All right, Bliram Brazda, thank you for your super chat. As far as I understand it, time exists because matter exists. What will happen when all matter converts into light? Will space-time stop existing and the universe stop existing? Thank you. Uh, those That's a couple of different theories there that are not proven mixed together on that one. We do not know that time exists only because of matter exists. That That is speculative. We do not know what time really is at this point in time to be able to say that. Truth be told, we don't really know what matter is at this point in time, not to be able to speculate on that connection. We know that space and time are inextricably linked together as essentially just one extra axis, and that does work with mass energy as a factor in that. Uh, as the idea that everything will convert into light at some point, um yeah kind of maybe sort of technically most of it will end up that way at some point in time as photons especially if we think it was like the the black hole heat death or iron stars heat death in the universe but those things still have mass and this important thing is that um energy is not you know uh mass is not energy is not unique to matter right all the gravity we have from things that can be done just by energy photons still have a gravitational effect so don't assume that all those things change around just because it's not in a physical, complex, normal matter state of protons and neutrons. All right, we're going to end with two questions from Win- Vincent Walden Rivera. I'm going to ask him one at a time. When will humans be able to obtain interstellar space travel? Um, 
Pete Warden uh, from Breakthrough Strongshot Initiative, uh, and I would say also myself, are both on the kind of loose agreement that he's going to be talking the thing I'm talking at next week, so he comes to mind. Anytime we feel like building a gigantic solar array to power a laser to push something up to high speed, we can get ourselves a probe, we get down for Centaurian Century, so we got that tech now. So, whenever we feel like we need to get moving on that, that's going to be expensive. That's not something you do easy, especially because you're probably talking about needing to set a probe that's at least a couple of tons to give it a chance of surviving the trip intact and functioning and being able to transmit stuff back to us. So, that's, that's when do we feel like spending a couple trillion dollars? Probably that kind of zone. Well, we're going to wrap up this uh, lightning round and live stream with one last question before the Isaac computer starts melting down and having smoke come out of these ears. Will it ever be possible for technology to create superhumans similar to the Marvel movies? Uh, yeah, um, but with, with limitations. They have to walk inside their zone of known physics. Uh, actually, see our episode, Godlike Aliens, that's the first one from May. Uh, for more details on that, because I was actually using that specific analogy for defining them. I think in many ways we'll find that the, the reality that's painted is probably both more and less than we see with the comic books. So, But so then, of you... course, there's the entire virtual reality of these things. You'll, within the century, be able to go live and play as one in a computer if you want to. And that's probably a good place to live off for the day. The lightning round is intensive, yeah. Yes, so if you like the lightning round and you wanted to stick around, drop a comment in the chat below <laughs> because uh, maybe we can end the with a five-minute lightning round in the future. That time we go. If we okay. get enough fan support. <laughs> There's no questions. See if I can answer them sanely. I would just go ahead and say to every question asked in the last ten minutes of that lightning round, grain of salt on every answer in case I said something incredibly stupid and wrong while I was doing that question. <laughs> <laughs> so we will see you guys next uh, next Thursday. Have a good afternoon and uh, a good week. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.